reading. I don't take a strong position on the extent to which, but this idea that you either have free markets and market setting prices, or you have some sort of price setting via intervention is just nonsense. And I gave an interview to a New York Times reporter a week ago, and I you know, started reflecting on my own experience for a period of time I worked in retail. And I knew exactly where prices came from. They came from my Sharpie pen. Welcome to Activist NNT, a podcast about real-world economics, including modern money theory, and how life changes when you discover it. I'm your host, Jeff Epstein. start adding in some people from our panel. Hello. Um, I think, how many people are we waiting on? Uh, we, have, we have Joe, Jeff. Uh, yes, we have a surprise guest um, who will be coming in very shortly. Special guest as well. Um, Welcome everybody and happy new year no one told me jeff ginter was going to be here <laughs> including me when i told you last night that's what I'm telling you. <laughs> um but I'm, I'm hi andy kennedy how are you i'm good thank you how are you wait is that miss Masachi? hello hello hey. hello steve hi steve how are you oh Oh, you're muted, Steve. Here's one of our special guests. Oh. Whoa. The blur. Andy, I love your voice. Thank you. Thank you. It's been a while. I've uh, taken a bit of a hiatus, so I've, I've, I've got to stretch it out a bit because uh, Carrie and I are getting started in the new year with uh, rebranding for an afternoon show. So so I'm, I'm a little out of practice. <clears throat> okay, why don't we go ahead and get started with this? Okay, what should we talk about? In the topic of the last two or three weeks has been inflation. Inflation is okay. the topic du jour. Okay, what does everybody think about inflation? <laughs> I think if it was a demand pull, then I would be spending a lot more money, and I'm not. So. <laughs> That's quite true. So, uh, you know, the, the price level is, you know, entirely a function of prices paid by government. That's the only information the markets have for absolute value. 
other than that, markets can only determine relative value. So we've had a lot of relative value shifts. We've had a one-time adjustment uh, so far. And the question is whether this turns into some continuous thing. So th that requires a couple of things. Number one, the government has to pay the higher prices, which it undoubtedly will because it doesn't understand what's going on. And uh, no, number, number two, uh, we need to, um, and, and even if it did understand, it might choose to do that anyway, but there'd at least be a discussion. And because uh, strange things happen when government pays more, they wind up buying less in real terms, but we can walk you through that. That's a whole discussion. The, the other thing is, uh, I think at the core of all this is energy costs. So we look at oil at about uh, 75 or $80 a barrel right now, depending on whether it's West Texas or uh, rent. And um, if it stays around here, these things will probably be transitory and, and prices will have gone up in inflation, but the inflation numbers will go flat because to get inflation back towards you know zero to 2%, you don't have to bring prices down. They just have to stop going up. And in fact, they don't come down. They just stay where they are and go up at a slower rate. And that's most likely what will happen. But if the Russians and the Saudis are intent on raising oil prices, it will they will go up because they're the at the margin of the monopoly supplier. And they could turn this thing into a continuous increase in the price level, which, you know, we would call inflation. So it's uh, it's it's a political decision right now in the hands of the Saudis, whether whether a, a one time adjustment due to supply side issues turns into a continuous increase in the price level. Warren, I have a question. Is it is it reasonable to free? You said uh, um, prices are. I don't remember exactly how you said it, but prices are a f exclusively a function of of the government, you know, being price setter. Is it reasonable to phrase that as that the government sets the floor for prices and that the market can set the prices with above that floor? Well, the government think of it as setting one price. So let's say uh, when we were on the gold standard, the government would set the price of gold. Back then, it used to be $35 an ounce. And then it would let the markets, everything else would express the expression of relative value and, uh, you know, value relative to gold. And so if prices went up, that was, they're going up relative to gold. Gold was still the same. It was unchanged. So you have what's called the buffer stock. In that case, gold was the buffer stock. And then uh, markets uh, taking that price and using it to set relative value. Right now, we use unemployment as our buffer stock. They'll have unemployment go up or down to, um, you know, put pressure on market prices. And wh what we pay for unemployment compensation, what you can do to get money at the margin is kind of the price signals that the markets are getting now on a continuous basis from government. And it's only marginally effective. Okay. And so uh, I've recommended using an employed buffer stock, which is a much more effective price anchor because the people in it can transition to the private sector much more easily. So it's a more liquid buffer stock. It's more useful. It can keep um, uh, labor shortages and labor bottlenecks from happening because the people in the pool are readily available to the private sector because they're already working. Private sector doesn't like to hire people who aren't already working. Uh, and th I don't, does that answer your question at all? I think so. Yeah. Thank you. Okay, let, let me look. Markets can sort out relative value only. All the Fed's models are just relative value models. They don't have a price level in them. You have to give them, put, you have to put, put a price level in with your assumption. What they do is they assume yesterday's prices as the starting point, and then show how the markets can change those prices. But they don't, you know, they 
I don't understand the idea of the currency being a monopoly. If they did, they'd understand monopolists are price setters. That's micro 101. And then they would have a starting point for their model, but they don't have that. And uh, they came up with something called the fiscal theory of the price level way back, which wasn't bad, but they gave up on it because they didn't have a source of the price level. And all they had was an infinite regression back to try and figure out where prices came from. And so they, they, they use this inflation expectations thing to show how prices shift, but it doesn't give you a source of the price level. And they don't recognize the government as the uh, providing the information that markets then use for absolute value. And so it's, it, it doesn't work. And they're now concluding their data shows, you know, the Fed's inflation models absolutely don't work. You haven't seen a, a, a study come out from the Fed in a long time showing how, uh, you know, interest rates and inflation are related or how inflation expectations and inflation are related because they haven't been able to do it. Um, but so, Warren, um, how do supply chain factors uh, fit in here? Yeah, well, they, they'll affect relative values. So when Saudis raise the price of oil, the oil goes up relative to everything that didn't go up, okay, until other things do go up to catch up as price filters through. And the government, of course, is a large consumer of oil, particularly for the military, they just pay the price. And Americans will pay the price, uh, you know, who are agents for the government, people on Social Security and people getting stimulus checks and getting money from you become the government's agent for setting prices when they just give you money. Uh, you know, as opposed to when you exchange something of value, when you work for the government, you're exchanging your time for the money, that becomes an expression of value. But if it's just a uh, you know, just a check uh, with nothing on the uh, supply side, then uh, then you become an agent for government when you're spending you know, at the margin. So anyway, uh, so these supply side things have a big effect on relative value. And it's like when the crops die, prices go up. And, the, you know, the if the peaches die, the price of peaches go up. And uh, people have then less money to spend on other things. Uh, and so other other things are, uh, you know, volumes sold of other things go down accordingly and you get shifts in relative value. The Fed always talks about whether a relative value story is going to turn into an inflation story. In the first instance, when prices go up like they have now, they know it's a relative value story, they, which is a one-time shift. They wonder if it's going to turn into an inflation story, which is a continuous shift. So they look through all their data, things that are... Uh, sticky prices, you know, and whether they're moving or not, and that type of thing, and uh, trim mean prices. They have all kinds of, probably have 20 different indicators to help them see if this thing's evolving into an inflation story. Could we talk about um, uh, the supply chain in terms of, because I keep hearing about, uh, you know, shipping containers held up in Africa, shipping containers held up in China, they were not getting yeah. the products. How much of that is, is affecting the uh, the price? It's already affected price. That's all priced in. And now that's clearing up. This stuff is clearing up. And you're seeing a lot of prices that went up a lot are now coming down. Shipping rates are coming down. They're not back to where they were, but they're going the other direction, which shows up as deflation, right? So if mm -hmm. lumber goes from 300 to 1,700, that's inflation. Shows up in our inflation indicators. It goes from 1,700 back to 1,000. That shows up as a deflationary bias in the next period. So it's already coming down that way. Now, one thing people aren't talking about are the tariffs. So we have a, which is a government policy to increase price. So we had a, you know, 17% tariff on Canada because they weren't charging us enough for lumber. That's what 
tariffs are about. You penalize people uh, who aren't charging us enough. As much sense as that makes intuitively, it doesn't make any more sense when you do all the math. It makes even less. But so we just and you know Biden just President Biden just doubled down on those tariffs and he doubled the tariffs on Canada just from seventeen to thirty four or something like that. So and that's a reflection of being so, protectionist for for American lumber. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And ninety five percent of Americans support this. We have to do something about China. We got to do something about those Canadians who aren't charging enough. So uh, politically, poli yeah, politically it sells. And, um, and so that, that's what these guys are doing. And it's a deliberate policy to have these one-time price increases, which, you know, we call, which are casually called inflation. And so do we want inflation or not? I mean, we have government policy to promote higher prices as part of some long-term strategic benefit, presumably. I don't see what it is, but they do. And, uh, you know, I guess it's so we have more jobs in lumber, so we can't have people to be healthcare workers when we have epidemics. You know, what are they doing? They're treating like labor like it's some kind of like surplus thing that we have to use up. You know, this creates jobs. It's a good thing. It's not. Yeah. Labor is always in short supply, and we need to be careful how we allocate it. That's called productivity. We want maximum productivity. You know, we all used to, you know, 200 years ago, we couldn't have this discussion because we'd have to be working the fields because it took. 99% of the people to grow the food or we'd starve. Now it takes 1% of the people to grow the food so we can do this. And inflation, I mean, unemployment is 4% or something. It's not 95%, right? So the economy has infinite needs for labor. And it's just a question of you know, policy allowing them to be fulfilled. And the more, the higher productivity goes, the more robots we have, the more net imports we have, uh, you know, the, the wealthier in real terms that we are. You know, not that we don't fill ourselves up with a lot of stupid junk. That's a different issue. But just but that, how we measure wealth in real terms. Yeah. But that, re that requires yeah. people to understand where the source of the price comes from, where yeah. inflation is coming from. If that yeah. all, everyone on TV and all the politicians keep saying bad government spending too much, but yeah. you know, we don't talk about, you know, credit controls. We don't talk about tariffs. Yeah. We don't talk about any of these other things. You know, yeah. then we're going well, to right. suffer. How how long ago was it when COVID first hit? And a week later, emission, emissions, harmful emissions of everything oh. dropped fifty percent. Right. You could see China from space for the first time. Right. First time. And what did we give up? Uh, we gave up, um, you know, non-essentials. Bad All behaviors. Right, so, mm -hmm. Yeah. So let's say not. So so let's say how important are these non-essentials? Are they more important than, you know, emissions? Well, obviously. No. Yes, they're a lot more important. <laughs> so all our non-essentials. So where's our where's our mission? You know, in terms of, you know, how essential is it to like cut emissions? Well, not very much because we were willing to double our output of harmful emissions to, on non-essentials. This is like, how serious is anybody? I just say forget about it. We're, it's going to boil over, and we just have to figure out how we're going to deal with it because we didn't even have any discussion on whether these non-essentials should be brought back you know, versus emissions. I mean, it wasn't even a discussion. Now we're patting ourselves on the back because we're back to, you know, burning more oil than we did before this all started. And, and so we've successfully navigated this COVID crisis. <laughs> Congratulations to us, right? <laughs> These are pyrrhic victories. We're back on pace to, to uh, continue to destroy the planet for us. Congratulations. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Don't look up. Don't look up. Oh, God, I saw that last night. It was so depressing mm-hmm yeah <laughs>
You know, I, I'm 72 now, so I guess it's your problem. <laughs> <laughs> Spoken like a true capitalist. Right, Warren, right, right. Warren, you were banned yeah. forever from speaking to my kids. <laughs> <laughs> you don't want me speaking to your kids. Casual, casual comments like that. Yeah. <laughs> the butter knives out. That's all we can afford. You know, right. we talk about race cars. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> right. I have a question for Warren. Oh, uh, Dr. Are, are you in St. Croix or someplace? Yes. Like, yes. I'm, at the deep end. I'm at the deep end waiting for lunch to be served. <laughs> <laughs> well, then you've, you've got to wait then. Uh, <laughs> Representative Yarmouth, the chairman yes. of the House Budget Committee, is retiring. Yes. <clears throat> which is a catastrophe as far as I'm yeah. concerned. But let's assume he's earned it. Do we have anybody? in Congress who we should be supporting. Uh, no. One of the, one of the things about, okay, that I like great. that answer. Is there anybody running for Congress who we should be supporting? No. Uh, I don't know. I don't know. I don't know. I don't know. Well, what happened to uh, Roe out in California? I thought he was on the path to righteousness with MMT, yeah. and then all of a sudden he fell off. Yeah. What, yeah. what in the world is going on? We can't yeah. count on them. We can't. Yeah. Okay, so I've got this. I've been saying for a long time that, you know, my 60-40 campaign contribution plan. Okay, you can give all the money you want to a politician, but 40% goes to the opposition. Okay, it immediately takes all the money out of politics. There's no government involved. And, you know, it's there's a lot of support for it when I talk individually, but it never hits the media. Nobody... None of the elites want to ever see that happen because it cuts into their game, I guess. But we need to get that done first before um, anything's going to change. <laughs> yeah, I mean, <laughs> if I could just respond to that, because uh, you, you, you might remember I did on Twitter and um, and thought, well, you know, yeah, <laughs> it wasn't a very favorable response to the idea. I mean, yeah, if you just look yeah. at it, you know, if if you just if you just uh, if you assume that there was a sort of binary, you know, two party two party system there, which of course the America pretty much does. Well, a lot of countries have. But yeah. if if you look at the UK, I mean, what would be the point of giving sixty percent to the Tories, for example, and forty percent to to Labour when when the fix has already gone into the Labour Party? Um, yeah. You know, be, be, before we before we get to elections, I mean, Starmer's yeah. only going to be, you know, a Tory light, so so it doesn't kind of right. work. Yeah, if the Tories have a funding advantage, then it would take that away. But apart from that, it won't do anything. I yeah, mean, I mean, as, I, as far as I'm concerned, the, the the whole concept of concentrating on politicians is a fool's errand. The whole yeah. thing, from top to bottom, inside and out, including us. Uh, does not speak well for the possibility that we're going to be able to elect people who will magically one day discover that they need to do something for the people. It's not going to happen. Don't look for it. The only time things right. really change for the people is when the people rose up and demanded the suffragettes, the labor movements, all these things. Yes. The only way to change the government is to become ungovernable. There yeah. you go. Well, it's a, yeah, it's a, it's a, Look, the problem is the change has to be approved by the legislature, and we got a legislature that's got reasons not to do that. And so the only we we, we got to take those reasons away from them somehow. Yeah, I and mean, so we, I, we kind yeah. of are. Sorry, Warren, uh, we are in yeah. kind of catch twenty two, though, aren't we? Because yeah, I mean, 
I mean, what, what, what I'm seeing is it's a complete systems failure. I mean, you're a systems yeah. man, and I mean, so am yeah. I. I. You know, I'm a retired yeah. engineer. You know, we, yeah. we think that way, both of us. Now, yeah. you know, the whole system is failing. I mean, we see it, you know, with COVID, we see it with the climate change thing. You know, we're, we're seeing it with the Trump presidency. I mean, what the hell did yeah. that come from? I mean, you know, so it's a systems thing. So I think we can't, you know, we can't really rely on on, on the idea that, uh, you know, the, the, you know, the existing system of, yeah. of, but, uh, you know, uh, of governance is it's going to work. So coming back to what, um, sorry, um, Jeffrey Ginter, oh, right. you know, he's talking about a sort of general strike idea that, you know, you, we have to have, if you're going to go down that route, and I think it's a possible idea, is to, we've got to have some nice, simple ideas that, that are going to be fit for purpose. Yeah. Just a little context. Uh, hi, Stephanie. We have Hello. a, uh, it's a, uh, my, there's something wrong with my camera. It's, um, look, humanity is a work in progress, right? <laughs> and uh, when, I, when, I, when I was growing up, when I was growing up, we had National Guard shooting, killing students at Kent State, okay? And so we, we've come a long way from that. You know, we had Kennedy killed and Martin Luther. We haven't had a political assassination in a long time. And so, it, you know, things are not nearly as they were in the 60s and 70s. They're a lot more calmed down. We haven't had anything like Vietnam. We had Afghanistan, which is anything like that. So it seems to, like, be getting diffused over time. But I think this condition you're talking about with politicians particularly has always been that way. And it was probably worse, you know, you know, in the past, a lot worse in terms of the corruption, in terms of the, the elites getting what they want and, uh, you know, getting away with murder literally, literally back then mm. all the time, you know, um, and we can talk about, uh, you know, all the atrocities that have been committed and I, around I, the world. I'm not yeah. so sure about I'm not so sure about that, Warren. I I think yeah. I think they just got better at working working the propaganda machine. That would be well, my response. They, to you that. have five corporations. Yeah. They don't, use, don't need to use the force. The media. So well, we almost yeah. we almost saw the vice president hung. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, that's right. That's right. That's as close as we got. <laughs> Something to ask of you, Jeff. Um, specifically, Jeff, um, um, if we have our general strikes, yeah which I'm also very much um, in favor of. Mm -hmm. How are we going to bring uh, um, um, Congress to the place where we want it to be uh, with our general strikes, even assuming successful general strikes that go on for a long time? Well, first, I don't think we're going to get a general strike that we need until we have the mutual aid to support it. Right, you're changing the subject. Okay, let's say we have all the background conditions all in place. Okay, let's let's make that assumption. Okay. Okay, and let's say that we go to a general strike. Mm -hmm. How do you suppose Congress is going to respond to a general strike? This poorly. Congress, poorly. poorly. Well, specifically, yeah. can you be a little more specific about that, Jeff? The, the way that I see it going, the, the only way you're going to bring Congress to the table to negotiate at all is to shut down uh, sections of the economy that their uh, donors, the people they actually work for, are going to care about. And there's going to be pushback against that. Like I've said from the beginning, we have to be honest about the violence that will be visited upon us. We okay. will not be violent. They will be. But if um, we don't um, shut down, um, well, I, I do agree with that, Jeff. 
Mm -hmm. okay, but I have to point out that the point of leverage there mm -hmm. is getting at uh, the donors. Yes, which means you have to shut down their industries. You have to threaten stopping, their power. Stopping the flow of donor money to the Congress people. That's that what is they're going to respond to. Them. You uh, right, have you stop their flow of money so they bang on the politicians. Mm -hmm. uh, what this is about, okay, is the donors essentially stopping or threatening to stop their contributions to the Congress people. Mm -hmm. Okay, that's where the point of power is. Yeah. Okay, so I have another way of disrupting it. Okay. Okay, so my idea is to develop a dump the incumbents campaign. Okay, it works like this. There's a simple rule that everybody follows in voting. And it, they do it at all levels of government. Uh, you dump the incumbents who are taking uh, any kind, okay, of big money. Um, PAC money, uh, extremely large contributions from, uh, from wealthy people or corporate money. Okay, if a candidate is tainted by that, you don't vote for them. Okay, it's very simple. You organize a national campaign to do that. It doesn't stand alone. It goes along with the general strikes. It goes along with all the other movements. It, it rides on a wave of activism that essentially sweeps the country. What I'm thinking is that if you deliver that kind of shock to the Congress, that you're going to start to get people to view the money as toxic, toxic to them. You have to show them they cannot take the money okay, and get reelected. Seems to me a dump the incumbents campaign like that is likely to change the system. I have very little hope in that. I think it's a wonderful idea, but it assumes a lot of things that I don't think exist. But the, the, the problem is, is that, um, for one thing, we still have a population that is viewing politics like they view football. Mm. They just want their team to win. Uh, I think we have mass media uh, working against that kind of a strategy. Uh, I think we have voting machines that work against that kind of a strategy. I think a general strike, for example, does not require everyone to participate. It requires a significant portion of people to participate, but not everyone. The strategy that you're asking for requires everyone. And even if we did, I think the oligarchs are smart enough to be able to take these idealistic people that come into Congress, absent, you know, the strong push that we need. Uh, there are all kinds of answers, okay, to what you say, okay, but um, I think you make a good argument. Mm -hmm. So I'd like you to come on my Dump the Incumbent show. Sure, to love to. Argument, okay, in full, but I don't want to divert attention. Mm -hmm. Um, but from the economics issues, okay, sure. that, uh, uh, you know, that we were talking about uh, for uh, any longer. So I'd like to refocus the discussion back, okay, on inflation, okay. If uh, 
uh, Joe, if I may. Inflation. Uh, uh, yes, Jeff. This is, uh, I don't know if it's directly related to inflation, but if, if, uh, if Stephanie, if you're willing to just review, you just posted a long thread uh, in proxy of James Galbraith in response to Krugman. And I was wondering if you might consider, you know, reviewing that situation and his response and so on. Uh, yeah, I mean, I'm happy to, to do that. I think Jamie's thread is pretty straightforward. Um, and to be honest, I still have not read the piece in question, which is the Guardian piece. Uh, I, um, I saw what I saw yesterday, which was, I thought, a very um, abusive and inappropriate way for a Nobel laureate to engage with the work of a young female scholar. I didn't like it. Uh, I flagged it for Jamie, not knowing that Jamie has a personal relationship with this young scholar who is an assistant professor at UMass and the winner of the Joan Robinson Prize at Cambridge. I mean, you know, this is a serious person. And to just toss out a few tweets referencing an op-ed that she did and essentially calling her stupid. I mean, okay, he says, this is stupid, not she is stupid, but it may as well have been, you know, uh, insulting her, you know, intelligence. Yeah. So I didn't like it. So I flagged it for Jamie, uh, knowing that, you know, he would respond the way that I did, not knowing that he had a, has a personal relationship with her, that he was a sort of mentor to her. So he got very protective as as one would expect and asked if he could draft something. And I'm not on Twitter. He said, you are, would you be willing to lend a platform? Of course, yeah, I'll do that. So we had some phone call last night and a, a little back and forth today. And he made some adjustments to it and I, I posted it. And I just think, you know, obviously Jamie is someone who has some pretty close personal experience with wage and price controls via his father. And, uh, and, you know, I've been reading, I don't take a strong position on the extent to which, but this idea that you either have free markets and market setting prices, or you have some sort of price setting via intervention is just nonsense. And I gave an interview to a New York Times reporter a week ago, and I you know, started reflecting on my own experience for a period of time I worked in retail and I knew exactly where prices came from. They came from my Sharpie pen that I used to walk around <laughs> tagging the floor and I could change the price anytime I felt like it. I was responsible for achieving a certain markup on different categories of merchandise. I had a multi-million dollar budget every month. I sat down, I placed orders and I knew the markups that I was expected to hit in these different categories. And I also knew that I could hit a much bigger markup if I changed prices at my discretion. And I could do so in spite of, you know, my landed costs not changing. Sometimes your costs do increase and you can pass those costs along or you can more than pass those costs along. I think a lot of what the debate is today is the extent to which price firms with price setting power taking advantage of the current inflationary uh, episode to more than capture, right? Protect their margins and pass on rising input costs. In other words, there's some profiteering going on in different industries. Mm -hmm. And I 
I think it's okay to recognize that. I think we should look into that. I think it's reasonable to say, you know, that people like Senator Warren and others who are calling for congressional investigations into some of these things, whether it's trucking or um, shipping, the big shipping. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You know that. So uh, I, again, I did not read her piece yet, but I've set aside a number of things and I saw some other scholars tag onto her research and say, oh, this is similar to something that I wrote, you know, a legal scholar, mm-hmm. a much bigger, fully fleshed out piece. I had been reading in recent weeks, John Kenneth Galbraith's little book, it's downstairs. Uh, it's just called Money. The book is called Money. But the last part of the book is Galbraith grappling with the inflationary pressures uh, under the Nixon administration, Nixon's early refusal to go to make the decision to return to some wage and price controls. Yes. And that ultimately, he did cave and he did decide there was no other way to get a handle on things. And when he finally did make that decision, the inflationary pressures uh, came down. So I'm not an expert on this stuff and this, uh, you know, the history of using wage and price controls. Obviously, Jamie is much closer to this stuff. And so that he felt there were important parallels that could be drawn between the current inflationary pressures and some of the things that we experienced historically, whether it was World War II or in later times and how governments have responded in ways that he thinks were perfectly reasonable and that it's not unreasonable to suggest some targeted measures along those lines today and to just be dismissive of, you know, the work of this young economist. It was just an intervention, I think, worth making. And I, and, you know, judging by my Twitter feed, I, my impression is that a lot of people really appreciated Jamie's intervention and that they think that it's worth thinking through in a much more careful way, these sort of, you know, policy questions. It is a policy question. It's, it's all, it's very interesting to me, this discrimination angle that I didn't realize that I didn't realize how, how important that particular angle was until you started talking about it. And, you know, it brings me back to where I came up with, where I discovered this idea with Fred Lee's book, The History of Heterodox Economics, mm-hmm. that it's discrimination, not just, not just to minority uh, schools of thought, but it's discrimination within the majority schools of thought to minority people, you know, women and, and whatever that, that, that angle is, is really, really important of him using that as an excuse to crush an idea that he doesn't yeah, like. You, you're, you can rest assured that if someone like Olivier Blanchard had published a piece that was sort of dipping its toes gently into the wage and price setting literature and kind of mulling, hmm, I wonder if it might make sense. So it would have had a very probably different reaction from someone like mm-hmm. Paul Krugman. But that it comes from someone working in the tradition of Joan Robinson, maybe a female, young, at a school like UMass, who, I mean, you know, I don't, I don't know what the motives are, but it, it was petty and worth calling out. As Paul Krugman usually is worth calling out. Unfortunately, <laughs> too often. No. Can I, can I just ask Stephanie a, a question, a macro question? Uh, how, how, could, how, how would you integrate, you know, the price control story uh, with, you know, with Warren's 
Warren's statements about, you know, the, the, the origin of the price level, you know, being the monopolist uh, currency issuer. How, could, you, how, could, you, could you just, uh, you know, discuss those two together for, for us, thanks? I don't know. I, I don't know that I want to do that on the fly. Um, I, it's something I've been thinking about. I watched one of his recent, I don't know, interviews, whatever it was that he did, where he laid this out again. And of course, I had seen him do it, I think, for the first time at UMKC many years ago uh, when he did a formal yeah. presentation. So I think that, you know, Warren's point, I, as I understand it, is that, you know, government is effectively the price setter, whether it recognizes it or not. And, you know, he's got this thing through forward rates and via the interest rate being the ultimate kind of anchor there and changes in interest rates then can transmit or would transmit themselves through to a, a broad array of prices in the economy, essentially through relative price changes. Right. I don't know how I want to think about that in the context of some something like, say, you know, trucking where you have decades of regulatory or in this case deregulatory um, policy policies that have left the trucking industry the way that it is today fractured and highly concentrated and you know there are rules and regulations in place that allow freight in the trucking industries to exert the kind of influence that they've had. And that, that leads to the bottlenecks that then give rise to the uh, price pressures. So it just isn't clear to me that you would effectively deal with that kind of thing by recognizing the state as price setter via the term structure of prices using the interest rate as an anchor. I, I don't know how to think it all through. I think for me, there's probably a, a way to go directly to um, policy interventions that are tailored to these specific actors, whether it's in meatpacking or trucking or uh, the airline industry or whatever, and, and take steps to, you know, relieve the price gouging if that's what's happening in some of these industries. So I've been, like I said, I've been reading a lot and uh, have a big pile of things with an, in, with a, goal of one day sitting down and going through and pulling it all together so that I can have a, a sort of statement on the record about how I'm thinking about the current inflation, the policy response, appropriate policy responses from an MMT perspective as through my, right, my MMT lens, but it may not be uh, compatible with the way Warren would do it. Uh, the thought I had on that was that uh, from Warren's point of view, he was looking at the government as the price setter, yeah. basic price setter. And then he was basically saying that from that point on down, okay, it's the market that does um, the adjusting yep. of prices. So he's relying on uh, the market there. But quite a bit of research um, going on now uh, is saying that there are many exceptions to market forces in actually determining uh, the structure okay, of inflation. There are cultural forces, and there are political forces, uh, um, there are sociological forces. 
Uh, I mean, I suppose I'd add there are psychological forces, okay, as well. So that doesn't seem like an explanation, uh, which uh, other than the price setting from government actually relies on market forces um, all the way up. That doesn't seem like it fits with the other research that's going on um, in the inflation area from an MMT perspective. Uh, you know, it's well, like I said, I mean, there are you you look at the auto prices, right? Just something weird happens with semiconductors, and all of a sudden you have this pass through to headline CPI in the early phases when inflationary pressure started to really pick up. It was almost exclusively used car prices, right, and trucks. So it's hard, right? I think this is along the lines of what you're saying, right, Joe? That it's hard to see how you fit Warren's narrative into a story about what government can do via interest rate changes to attenuate inflationary pressures that are being driven by some weird thing. Now, you know, it used to be healthcare costs. You could talk about permitting and housing market and, and you can get, you know, a single thing, a component of CPI, just one um, going parabolic for reasons that have to do with big pharma, you know, or the private health insurance companies, healthcare costs are going up, prescription drug costs are going up. That drives the headline CPI, even if everything else was just, you know, stable, it would, it would be reflected in a generalized increase in prices via the CPI, even though it's not generalized and it's really just, you know, healthcare costs. So, you know, I know that Warren is often you know, talking about Medicare for all as a deflationary policy. Now, clearly that's a way to deal with inflationary pressures. And that is a way for government as, you know, exerting its its power as a, a purchaser, right? Procurement, price setting, and so forth. So that's why my I always go under the hood. You know, when people talk about inflation, my my answer has always been a little bit different, I guess, or a lot maybe a lot different. And you know, people say, well, what does MMT say to do when inflation happens? As if there's a one size fits all, right? Do this, pull this lever, and that will be inflation. And I've always said to people, before I will answer your question, you have to tell me what's the source of the inflationary pressure. So I always you know, tell this story, like if I go downstairs and I walk into my basement and I find it flooded with water, I know I have a problem on my hands, but I don't know why I have a problem on my hands. I don't know if a kid left a faucet running, a pipe burst, a sink overflowed, toilet is overflowing, you know, I, I, I don't know. Um, so until I can diagnose the source of the problem, I don't know what to do to fix it. And I've always thought of inflation in kind of that way, right? What What is the source of the inflationary pressure? And the idea, and, and Warren's good on this. I, I know he always says, you know, economists define inflation as a generalized increase in prices. It's almost never that. It's almost never the case that the price of everything is going up. It's almost always that it's in housing or it's in healthcare or it's in energy, you know? Um, we have another panel that's coming on, okay, at 1 p.m., okay, and it is 1 p.m. now. Uh, so I think I have to thank you all, okay, and um, 
um, also especially Warren, okay, and Stephanie for being the focus of the questioning, uh, and say thank you very much for a wonderful panel. Thank you all. Well, thanks, thanks guys. We'll we'll do this again. Maybe I'll drop in again tonight. We'll see. Please, please do. All of you. Because we're going to have more inflation. Thank right. you. All right. Thank Bye. you so much, everybody. Bye. See you all later. Thank you. Bye. Thank you. Bye.